Amen. He is holy. I am so thankful for the opportunity. Also, I thank you guys a lot, and there's a reason for that. That's because I have many reasons to thank you all, and I am thankful for the opportunity to bring the Word of God to you all. Um, I was maybe this week more reflective than normal, and I was just reflecting on what an incredible privilege I have to bring the Word of God, Um, and it's not something that I take uh, very lightly, especially here at Praise Assembly. I was maybe in preparation for today, maybe I don't know, the series as I was thinking through kind of my own history here at Praise Assembly and over the years. Um, the first time I came to Praise, uh, I wasn't actually a believer when I first came to Praise. I came mid to late 90s. First time I was visiting a friend who I grew up with in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and they had moved to Springfield, Missouri. And so I had just come to visit. And uh, when I came to visit, I think you guys had just built this south wing of the facility. And I mean, it was brand spanking new, I think. And, and when I came in, first, first thought I remember having is, boy, they build all their churches the same. Because like I had been to a church in Kenosha, Wisconsin called Kenosha First Assembly, and their auditorium is exactly the same as this. Uh, galleries, balcony, fan shape, and I, and I was like, well, I guess just all the churches are the same in that Assemblies of God thing. And, and, and so that was my first thought. I remember also, I have this vivid memory. I remember that moment, and I also remember a vivid moment of when I was in uh, the Sunday school class. I still can picture it to this day. It looks totally different now, but I remember just sitting there. It was a high school Sunday school class at the time. Probably Liz was in the, in the room. That was probably the first time I actually... Uh, met her, um, but I just have this vivid picture of the room, and I don't remember what we talked about or anything else, uh, um, but it was just this vivid memory of that moment when I first came to praise, and I remember that probably better than anything else, and, and I, again, hadn't accepted Christ at that point, and then several years later in 2000, uh, that same friend came up to visit in Kenosha, and I was... I mentioned last week sitting next to a lake with this friend and she led me to Christ there next to that lake and that's where I first met Christ and from there moved back to Springfield and and Praise Assembly has been such a vital part of my life and since that time and so I look back over the last 20 years and I think of all the relationships formed and even Liz and I, when we got married, we got married on this stage in 2005. I've told you the story before. That was when, when the wedding was, sometimes you, this week, I guess, I was realizing that wedding was like two plus hours long. And I don't think I ever apologized for that. So for those of you who were here, we were so self-absorbed, like it was all about us, and I am so sorry for making you sit through a two-hour wedding, okay? But that was the wedding. It was middle of the summer, and the air conditioning unit on top of the stage went out, and it was so hot that Liz, like, passed out, although I don't like call it passing out. I like to call it she swooned, because that way you think it was, you know, me, Anyway, so, but she passed out, and I kind of moved out of the way so she wouldn't hit me. Um, I, I've, we've watched the video recently. Anyways, that's maybe part of the reason why I'm reflecting as well. But, but I just think of how much 
my relationships, the people that I'm closest to, my friendships, my closest friends are all connected with this church and my faith and really the people that I've met and everything that over the last 20 years all goes back to when I met Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? Like it just, it's a realization that the trajectory of my life has fundamentally changed because of one moment next to a lake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And what the Lord was doing here in Praise Assembly in Springfield, Missouri affected me in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and I met Jesus Christ. And since then, my life has been changed. My death has been changed. My eternal life has been changed, all because I met Jesus. We're kicking off a new series today just called Meeting Jesus. And as we do, um, I really... I just want to read through some of the stories in the Gospels of people meeting Jesus and how Jesus meets them and what he does in those types of moments. And today, as we're kicking it off, I want to kick off with, with a story that really is Jesus' introduction, right? And so if you would, grab your Bibles today, and we're going to jump into what I'm calling, what we're calling the wedding manifesto, the wedding manifesto. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are some that are spread out throughout the auditorium today. And once you have them, if you would, open them up to the book of John, chapter 2. The book of John, chapter 2. Um, we're going to read the, the wedding manifesto. And as we do, I want to start with the last verse. Uh, I want to start at the end because you could hear five sermons on this story and have five different interpretations of what it means. And, and verse 11 gives us a reason why, okay? Because in verse 11, John chapter 2, verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is the first of his signs. Okay, the reason why you come up with all these interpretations, and I just took up some surveys, like an informal survey. So what have you heard preached on this story and talked to various people? And it's really interesting the different directions that people have gone with this story. And the reason why it's it, people do that, the reason why we kind of go different directions with it is that John is a different gospel. Uh, I shouldn't say it that way. It's not a different gospel. It, John comes at it from a totally different way than the other gospels. Each of the different writers talks about G the stories of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the, the things Jesus said in different ways, right? Like some of them will talk about one aspect of it and someone else will talk about a different aspect. Someone else will talk about a different aspect. And John is, talks about it in a, in a fundamentally different way. In a, one of the ways that you know that that's the case is the word he uses here, signs. This is the first of his signs. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they talk about the miracles that Jesus does, they call them miracles. They call them God breaking in in his power into nature and changing things. But John doesn't. When John talks about the miracles of Jesus, he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. He uses a different word. And he says very clearly in John chapter 20, verses 31 and 30, uh, 30 and 31, he says, 
I'm not bringing all of the stuff. I'm not going to tell you all the miracles. In fact, John only includes seven of the miracles of Jesus. And he really kind of goes through them right after the, one after another and puts them all at the front of the Gospel of John. In fact, many people call the Gospel of John really two halves. There's the first half they call the Book of Signs. And the second half they call the Book of Glory, okay? So that's the, the story of the passion and Jesus, you know, and the glory. Okay, so, but John, when he says this is a sign, he's saying it is signifying something. Okay, so when Jesus does a miracle and John records it, he's saying this is teaching you something about the character, the nature of Jesus or of God. Right? And sometimes it's super easy to figure out. Jesus will do a miracle and then he'll say right afterwards, here's what this means, right? Like he does the whole breaking the bread and multiplying it and feeding 5,000. Then right after that, what does he say in John chapter 6? He says, I am the bread of life. Right? I want you to understand that what I'm doing right here is really me showing you that I'm the one who sustains you. Or in John chapter 8, verse 12, he'll say, I am the light of the world. And then what does he do right after that? He heals a guy who was born blind. It is showing you something about him. Even the story we read last, last week, which was the final of those signs, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, what does he say right in the midst of it? I am the resurrection and the life. And let me just show you what that looks like. Boom. Right? So he's, he does these miracles, but he wants them to show us something about himself. Well, a lot of times, it's super obvious. And sometimes, it's not. And in John chapter 2, he does this incredible first sign, is what it says. The first of his signs. But then it doesn't say, and here's what this means for you all. So you'll get five sermons and five different interpretations, and some of them will get nutty. I have legitimately heard this story in a Catholic church one time telling us about how Mary is the perfect mediator for us. And I've heard this story explains to us that it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol. And I've heard this story say that it's really not okay for Christians to drink alcohol. I'm like, okay, what is it really saying? Because there's a bunch of stuff that people go, I just want to meet Jesus, right? And this is the point where it says that Jesus in this moment, this is the first of his signs as he's introducing his ministry. This is where it begins. And so let's just read the story, shall we? John chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. John chapter 2. Verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, there's a couple things that are really interesting about this setup, because that's the setup for the miracle, right? And the first thing that's really interesting is that John does, right across the very beginning of his Gospel of John, he's really very interested in kind of tracking the days. 
Doesn't do that through the rest of the gospel, but right at the very beginning, he tracks through the days. And some people say that as you work through them, you see that it's seven days. And here, when he points out that it's the third day, this is the seventh day. And that John is trying to show us that Jesus brings a new creation. And there's some validity to that. I don't know if that's the case. It may just be that he's saying this is three days after he meets Nathaniel. That's probably what it means. I don't know. But he shows up in Nathaniel's hometown with Nathaniel. Cana is Nathaniel's hometown three days after he meets Nathaniel. And he goes there for a wedding. And you know the setup. The bride and groom run out of wine. And that would have been, of course, an embarrassment for them. If you think two hours is long for a wedding, it is. But weddings in this day and age were not unheard of for them to go seven days. Okay, The process to take seven days long. And during this process, the groom's family in particular was really responsible for making sure that the provisions were there, especially for the wine, okay? So this would have been an embarrassing thing for the groom's family in particular if they would have run out of wine. More than just embarrassing, this is a family or a culture of honor and shame, and this would have been a shameful thing for them. They would have brought shame on themselves to run out of wine, out of the provision during the wedding uh, procession, the the week-long wedding ceremony feast thing. In fact, there is some indication that even based on the fact that this is more often than not, it was, it was, it was like a, a, a contract between families that they both had contractual obligations and for the groom's side, the contractual obligation was to do the provisions for this. And there's some indication that had they failed on that, there would have been legal ramifications and the bride's family could have actually sued the groom's family, which is if you think your family dynamics are awkward, like, I don't, I don't even, anyways, but we don't know if that's to that level, and we don't know why Mary even cares. Like, we don't know who the bride and groom are, but apparently Mary cares enough to say something about it. Maybe she's the caterer, maybe she's responsible for that portion of it, like her family, we just don't know. And it actually doesn't say Mary in here. It refers to her as the mother of Jesus. John never calls her Mary. He always calls her mother of Jesus throughout his gospel. And that probably might just be that there's so many Marys that John doesn't want us to get him confused. I don't know. But she goes to Jesus and says they have no wine. We don't know why she's concerned about it, but she is. We don't know what she expects Jesus to do. Some people think that she knows Jesus is the Messiah, and as such, she's expecting a miracle. Or it might just be that she's she's his mother, and he's asking her to deal with this. We don't know. Um, But she goes to Jesus, says, there's no more wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Which seems like a super harsh rebuke to your mother. And, and partly it is a rebuke. There's very, it's very clearly a rebuke. This is that moment when Tonto and the Lone Ranger are surrounded by Indians. And the Lone Ranger goes to Tonto, we're in trouble. And Tonto goes, what we, Kimosabi? <laughs> that's what this is. I mean, that's this, what does that have to do with me? This has nothing to do with me. This is not my problem. 
And he calls her woman, and that seems like a pretty heavy rebuke as well, but very clearly throughout the Gospels, when Jesus ever, whenever Jesus interacts with his family, he always goes to pains to ex- express the distance between them, okay? And, and so even as he calls her woman, he never calls her, hey, mom. He, he doesn't do that. He calls her woman, and he refers even on the cross when he's saying, okay, I need to take care of you. And as I'm getting crucified, I'm concerned enough about you, he even in that moment calls her woman again. He says, woman, this is your son, speaking of John. And so in that, you see very clearly that he cares for her. But at the same time, he's establishing distance. And, and very interestingly, I, I don't know, it speaks to me that we all come to Jesus on the same level. doesn't matter what your family name is and what your family pedigree is, right? doesn't matter. We all come to Jesus in the same way with the same need. But he establishes that, and so it's a rebuke, but it's maybe not as heavy of a rebuke as you might think. And it says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, when I read that, man, that stopped me in my tracks. Because Jesus is at a wedding here, and they run out of wine, and his mom comes to him and says, hey, they ran out of wine, and Jesus' first thought is, I've not yet arrived at that point where I'm going to die. Now, we might think that maybe he's just saying, oh, it's not time for me to start revealing my miracles and stuff like that. But every time in John, every time, there's seven times that it refers to the hour of Jesus or Jesus refers to my hour. And every single time throughout the Gospel of John that that term is used, every time it's talking about his death and resurrection. Every time. An example would be in John chapter 7, verse 30. Uh, where they're trying to arrest him, and it says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Okay, so very clearly he is talking about his death. So how's that for a non sequitur? I mean, like, we're at a wedding, everybody around is having a good time, and then Mary comes to you and says, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus goes, it's not time for me to die. Right? It seems like there's not a consistent like, connection with what's happening here. And, and why is Jesus looking like far off into the future with like, this spacey look in his eyes when they come to him and ask him for, for her, when she comes to him and asks him to do something about it? Because that's very clearly what's happening. He's thinking about his death at a wedding. Everybody else is having a good time and Jesus is thinking about his upcoming sorrow at the end of his ministry, not at the start of his ministry. And so he says, uh, the, the hour, my hour has not yet come. And verse 5 says, And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, when I read verse 5, I think it, our interpretation of verse 5 tells us more about ourselves than I think it does about the Bible. Because I've heard different interpretations of what's happening in verse 5. Some people think that Mary is displaying an incredible faith here. And some people think that Mary is being incredibly overbearing here. Right? And typically I think what we think Mary is doing here is indicative of our own relationships with our mother. Right? Like, if we think 
She's being overbearing. Maybe we have an overbearing mother. And if we think she has incredible faith, maybe we are the overbearing mother. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've heard a lot of different interpretations of what is happening in that moment, and I don't know, but she, Jesus says, it's not time for me to die yet. This isn't the hour of my death. And, and Mary then says, hey, servants, do whatever he says, and moves off. Like, we don't know. Maybe it's faith. Maybe it's like a bit of both. Who knows? But anyways, John chapter 2. Uh, that's the setup. Verse 6 then kind of gets into the miracle itself. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, took it out. John is really trying to draw our attention to something very specific here. And I'm sure of it. I have no doubt in my mind of this fact. And it's pretty obvious because John is saying a couple things over and over, right, in this verse. He says they're big stone jars. And these jars are for purification. So these are the jars that are intended for the ritual purifying, the washing that needs to go on. And the reason why they're stone, by the way, is because even in the specifications for it, if you have like a clay jar... It could, it could, the porousness of it could result in the actual water becoming impure. So they had to be stone jars, okay? So these are very specific jars, and they're probably super heavy. And he tells them you need to refill them because apparently they've started getting a little empty as they've gone through the purification process, right? As they're purifying things. So in this day, this had kind of grown up a little bit. And what needed to happen for someone to go through a process of purification. And you can kind of get an image of it back in Mark chapter 7 verse 3 and 4 where it says there, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, right? So there's a whole lot of purification stuff that's going on here. There's a whole lot of cleaning that needs to be done as part of this process. And by the time Jesus was on the scene, there were, I mean, there was a ton of information about how you had to go through the process. There were 126 chapters written in the Mishnah about how you purify. And of those, there were actually literally 1,001 items that needed to be purified just those that are on the hands and, and the vessels that you would use, there were uh, two subsections just on those items. And, and just the subsection on how to purify vessels was 30 chapters long. I mean, these are, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of ritual that has built up around this. And there's a reason why they have six jars of 30 gallons of water in order to purify stuff. But it all goes back to Exodus, chapter 40, verse 30. We're back in Exodus, chapter 40, verse 30. They've just set up the tabernacle. And it says, he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar. And he put water in it for washing. 
with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting, when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. Very clearly, the Lord is the one who starts this process. He tells them, you're about to come and meet with me. And before you do, you really need to wash up. He wants them to understand the fact that they are impure, that they are sinful, and that he is a holy God. And if they're going to come and meet with him, boy, they'd better make sure they recognize that fact ahead of time and go through this process of washing so they understand their own sinfulness. Now, over time, it grew and it expanded and it turned into ritualistic things, but still, when it comes down to it, it symbolized we are sinful and we need to be cleaned. Okay? So it says here that he tells them in John chapter 2, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So apparently they'd started going down some. They'd been using it. So fill them all the way up. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now the master of the feast was probably just a guest who was like, had the honorary position of master of the feast. Or it could have been a servant who was in charge of the whole thing. We don't really know. It sure seems like he has some authority, so probably just a guest. But what's really interesting is it doesn't say when the miracle happened. Right? It doesn't say that Jesus walked up to the water and waved his hands over it. Or that Jesus walked up to the water and did a sign of the cross over it. It doesn't say when the miracle happened. He tells them to fill the jars. Now they probably didn't pick up these jars because they're massive. They're heavy. And bring them to the well. So they probably went to the well, dipped it, brought it to the jars, filled the jars. And he says dip it and draw and bring it to the master of the feast. And I wonder what the servants must have been thinking while they were drawing. At what point? Like if it's still clear as they're walking to the master of the feast like what's going to happen when they get there we don't know but and that's not the point let's keep reading verse 9 and when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from sorry when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it, where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. So maybe it happens right when he's about to drink. Maybe it happened after they filled the jars. We don't know. But by the time the master of the feast takes the drink, it has turned into wine, and not just any wine, really very good wine, right? And he goes, boy, normally people wait until everybody has drunk their fill, which is a way of saying they're drunk, and then they pull out the, the, the poor wine, but you save the good wine for last. I, man, there's something about you, bridegroom. <laughs> Verse 11. And this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed 
in him. So this is the first of his signs. And what an interesting first sign. Don't you think? I think it's an interesting first sign. Nobody's dying. Nobody's paralyzed. Nobody's possessed. Nobody's been dealing with some sickness for years and years and years. It's just an embarrassing situation, maybe a shameful situation, maybe even lawsuit-level situation. But it's not an emergency. This is not the type of thing where somebody's starving or suffering or dying or crippled. And this is the way that Jesus' first sign comes. It says the reason why he does that is in order to manifest his glory. Now that's really very interesting. Because it doesn't say manifest the glory of God. It doesn't say manifest his father's glory. It says manifested his glory. So he's taking that glory which belongs to him, which nobody else sees, and he is showing it to people. Okay? And the way he decides to do that is by making a whole lot of wine when people are already drunk. Does that strike you as odd at all? Like this week, I really wanted to be able to visualize how much wine Jesus made. So I called my friend Joe. And Joe Sardo said, hey, Alan, I'll help you out. I happen to know a guy. I said, of course you do, Joe. You're Joe. And he said, I know a guy, or I've heard of a guy. His name is the Barrel Man. I said, let's call the Barrel Man. So we got on Craigslist, find the Barrel Man's name and number. And the Barrel Man is a guy in Fairgrove. Is the Barrel Man in the room right now? Just wanted to make sure. Because I don't think I want to call him the Barrel Man. I want to call him the Burrow Man. So we call the Burrow Man. He says, come on out. You don't need to buy the barrels. You can just borrow them. And I said, thanks, Barrel Man. And we headed out to Fairgrove. We got there, and it was an experience. An experience. Has anybody ever been to the Hillbilly Raceway in Fairgrove, Missouri? Oh my goodness. If you have not been, Saturday nights from 6 to 9 p.m., the borough man puts on the Hillbilly Raceway. And all they do is they just take cars, and the, the whole track is only like 100 foot long. Right, So it's not even as wide as this room. And they just take vehicles that are just beat up vehicles and they get in them and they race them around this track. But on that length, you can only get to like 25, 30 miles an hour. And it's not like a derby, it's just like a race. And it's, from what I've heard, ridiculously fun. So Joe and I went there to pick up some barrels. And we get there, and we stayed for like an hour and a half talking to him about this, this race. So 6 o'clock, Saturday night. Uh, all right, anyway, so we get some barrels. And so I asked him, can I borrow six barrels? And we've got six barrels. Here they come. 
six 30-gallon barrels. This is what six 30-gallon barrels, 180 gallons total, looks like. So when Jesus goes to a wedding and people have already drunk their full, he makes another 180 gallons of wine. Let's give them a round of applause. Now, I don't know about you, but these have been sitting in my office since, I think, Thursday. No, Wednesday. That's a lot of wine. And you think, when Jesus is thinking, how am I going to manifest my glory? Take what is mine and display it. What is the very first sign I'm going to give? He thinks, let's make 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot. Cana was a really pretty small town. We know from the ruins, it's not a huge town. And this is the wine that he makes. And that may seem a little buttoned down of Jesus. (laughs) But you know what's beautiful? All through the Old Testament, when God describes what the time is going to be like when the Messiah comes, do you know the illustration he uses? Wine. Over and over and over again. And, And I can't read all of the passages to you, but I want to read just one or two. Amos chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. When he's describing what the time is going to be like when the Messiah comes, what does he say? He says, man, the crops are going to be so impressive that they'll still be reaping one while it's time to sow the next. And and the mountains themselves are going to drip with wine and the hills are going to flow with wine. What a beautiful illustration of joy and celebration. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 through 8. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from faces, and the reproach of his people will t- he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So yeah, it's a little buttoned down of Jesus to make a whole bunch of wine When people have already drunk their fill. I 
also think it's kind of buttoned down of God when every time he talks about the Messiah that he uses this illustration of wine that's flowing through hills and dripping from mountains. So what what the Messiah does when he comes, what does he do? He turns water into wine. And that is a bunch of wine. And that's, I think, is probably too much wine. And I think they probably had leftover wine. I would imagine in the same way that they had leftover bread, they had leftover wine. And as much as I'm struck by how much wine there was, I think I'm struck more by how much water there was. Because in John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Yes, there was 180 gallons of wine. But before there was 180 gallons of wine, there was 180 gallons of water. Because in general, we know that we are a sinful people and we need to be made clean. See, we think of sin as if it's bad decisions. We think of sin as if it's maybe even a series of bad decisions. But the biblical definition of sin is not that it's a bad decision or a series of bad decisions. The biblical definition of sin is that it is a state of being in which bad decisions just kind of keep on coming. And we understand at a very basic level that we are sinful and we need to be clean. Now, most likely, they were probably over the top with 180 gallons of water in order to purify at a wedding. And probably some of it came from the ritual. But why do you think the ritual kept on expanding? Because we know we are filthy, we are stained, and we need to be cleansed. So Jesus comes to a wedding, and there is 180 gallons of water for purification. And he decides in John chapter 2, verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So, yes, Jesus came. And boy, he removed the shame and embarrassment and quite honestly, the failure of the groom and this young couple and their families. But more than that, he came and he illustrated the fact that he was going to remove the sin and the shame and the reproach of all people all over the earth. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 25. So that's why we call this the manifesto, the wedding manifesto. Because here Jesus makes his mission statement. I've come, and boy, you're dirty. And you need purification. But I have come to be that purification. And I will turn that water into wine so that you can celebrate. 
What a beautiful, beautiful illustration. What a beautiful mission statement. What a beautiful manifesto. And I think the reason why there were 180 gallons is because that's how much water there was. If there would have been 500 gallons of water, he would have made 500 gallons of wine. And if there had been 1,000 gallons of water, he'd have made 1,000 gallons of wine. It was about turning the water into wine. I think, and time for conjecture, this is conjecture, I think Jesus walked into the wedding and it broke his heart that at a wedding feast there was 180 gallons of water for purification. Because this is supposed to be a celebration. And all we can see is our own sinfulness. And I think it was a devastating thing to Jesus that they ran out of wine before they ran out of the water. And as they were making their preparations, they thought, okay, make sure we get wine. It's on the list. But really make sure we got enough water for purification. Oh, that's really on the list. That the water was more important than the wine. And so Jesus comes along and he says, Let's go ahead and flip this thing on its head. This is why I have come. This is my mission statement, my manifesto. And then I read it and I think even probably what strikes me even more about it is who saw it. How subtle this miracle is. Because the people at the wedding didn't catch it. Right? Who knew about it? The servants and the disciples. Like Jesus didn't stand up at the wedding and say, I am the bridegroom. There are certain things you don't do at a wedding. (laughs) You don't wear white if you're not the bride. There's certain etiquette you kind of abide by. Some of the etiquette, like, we've lost to time, but some people still know. Like, if you're at a wedding, and the bride walks in, you are not supposed to be the first one to stand. The bride's mom is. And typically, the bride's mom knows that. (laughs) So you watch the bride's mom, and she watches for the bride. The bride's mom is the first one to stand, then when she stands, you stand as well. Okay, this is etiquette, wedding etiquette. If you didn't know that before, you probably have embarrassed yourself without even knowing it. (laughs) Anyway. But Jesus doesn't wear white to the wedding. He doesn't stand up in the middle of the wedding and say, I am the bridegroom, come to me. And he could have. He does it at the Feast of Booths, remember? He stands up and says, if anyone in here is thirsty, have them come to me. But he doesn't. And in the very next chapter, it does say Jesus, by the way, is the bridegroom. So it would have been awkward, but Jesus could have stood up and said, I am the bridegroom. Look at what I just did. But he doesn't. Here is this beautiful manifesto 
We see this beautiful act that Jesus does, this aspect of his character that he reveals, and he says, this is what I've come to do. This is my mission statement, and only a few people get it. The master of the, of the, of the feast didn't get it. The bridegroom, like, the master of the feast comes to him, he's like, yep, that's what I did. <laughs> Nobody else at the feast got what was going on. Jesus just slipped in, he did it, and he didn't make a big deal of it. And I think that is just absolutely beautiful. I think that's beautiful. Because when Jesus came to me, he didn't come to me in such a way and say, here's who I am, make sure you have it all memorized by next week. He came to me very subtly and relationally. And we're at the point now where we're close again to another election, congratulations. I know, we just had one, and now here we are, this fall, gonna have another election. And in those commercials, every time somebody gets on there, they explain how they're going to fix the world. And yet, they've been in office for 40 years and haven't fixed the budget. But they put out there immediately what their manifesto is. And, and probably my least favorite thing is when I'm down on Commercial Street, which happened to me the other day, going to a restaurant, and someone comes up to me and hands me a clipboard with a petition. It says, go ahead and sign here, and this is what this will do for us. And I think, boy, Jesus didn't come to me in that way. He didn't come to me just saying, here's who I am, sign on the dotted line. Now, Jesus' manifesto came subtly. And he started relationally. And when he came to me, I didn't understand everything that he was doing. I didn't understand the full implications of it. And here I am 20 years later, and I'm still trying to figure out all of the implications of it. But gradually, slowly, I'm getting a little bit more of an idea. But the way Jesus introduces himself is subtly. He comes... Starts relationally. He doesn't say, okay, now read all of the terms and conditions. Sign on the dotted line. You're in relationship with me. He comes relationally and then reveals himself. I just think that probably the best illustration of that is that Jesus comes in relationship first. He doesn't make you sign a prenup. He doesn't say, Get all the terms and conditions. Now we're in relationship. All right. It's good. He comes and he introduces himself. He shows who he is. And then more and more you get to know him. And I, as I read this story, I think over and over and over again of how he reveals this manifesto so subtly. So perfectly. Because when I think of myself next to the lake, I didn't understand it then, but I did know at a very basic level that something was wrong. I knew at a very basic level that there was something that was off. And the way I was trying to overcome that was by pushing myself to be more successful by pushing myself to um, make more money. And, and Jesus said, 
No. Come to me. And he introduced himself subtly, right where I was at, right in the midst of my need. And he turned the water of purification into the wine of celebration. And this morning, boy, I, I think a lot of times 